Good morning. Please take out your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 2. The past few Sundays, we've covered the first 20 verses of this chapter. We've covered the story of the birth of the Lord Jesus. We saw how he was born under the humblest of circumstances in an animal shelter uh, in the uh, small town of Bethlehem where Mary and Joseph went to be counted for a census. And when he's born, Mary lays him in a manger. And everything seems just so uh, ordinary and unspectacular. But then last week we saw a birth announcement like no other. Uh, an angel appears to a bunch of shepherds. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And that's followed by a multitude of the heavenly host praising God, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Uh, This is the most extraordinary and spectacular of births. And so ordinary and unspectacular, just another baby born in the little town of Bethlehem, but so ordinary and spectacular because that baby is God incarnate the Son of God, taking on human flesh. I don't know if there's any scientific data to uh, back me up here, but there is a certain unique terror that I just assume is universal, uh, a certain unique terror that comes with being a first-time parent. You can read the books, you can take the classes, you can talk to other parents, but at the end of the day, right, you're, you're holding that newborn baby and you're like, Oh, I have absolutely no idea what I'm supposed to do. Like, well, what am I doing? Or maybe it's just me. Maybe I was uniquely unequipped. Uh, but I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. I think it's fair to say, though, that there's at least some sense of uh, maybe feeling overwhelmed, right, that all first-time parents experience. But now put yourself in Mary and Joseph's sandals. Got these two first-time parents... And so you've got the kind of deer in the headlights thing that that all first-time parents go through. But this is something completely different. Just think about what's happened in the past nine months. Mary's minding her own business and and an angel appears to her and tells her that she's going to supernaturally conceive a child. And not only that, but the child to be born is going to be called Holy, uh, the Son of God. And an angel appears to Joseph and, and tells him that the child would save his people from their sins. And then Mary gives birth, and a bunch of shepherds, they just kind of show up unannounced. Uh, They tell them that an angel appeared to them and declared that this baby was none other than a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Verse 19, Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. I mean, that's got to be a bit of an understatement, no? Like the baby that I'm holding in my hands right now is the Son of God, a Savior who is Christ the Lord, who is going to save his people from their sins. We might just be so familiar with those terms and those descriptions that we can't grasp just how mind-boggling this must have been for Mary and Joseph. You can just imagine their first few days of being new parents. A just smaller picture, just, you know, what are we supposed to do? Are we just supposed to raise him normally? Should we do all the usual stuff that other parents do? Or is there like a different guideline that we should be following here? And then bigger picture, they also had to be thinking, 
Okay, what does this mean that he is the Christ, the Messiah? Are all the the Jewish people going to come under his rule? How is he going to establish his throne? Well, in our verses for today, we're going to be looking at verses 21 to 39. uh, Some of those questions begin to get answered. And really in this section, you have three kind of mini narratives. Uh, You've got Joseph and Mary first, and then Simeon comes in, and then Anna joins in. And so this could have easily been three separate sermons in that sense. Uh, But I wanted to keep this narrative section uh, of text as a a whole, right, together uh, for two reasons. Uh, One, it's basically one event, right? Everything from verse 22 to verse 38 happens in, in one scene without any cuts. And two, all three of these mini-narratives in this story, uh, they help us to answer the same question. What should we expect from this newborn baby? Uh, Because all three mini-narratives kind of act as previews, previews of what this child came to do, uh, previews of who this child was going to be. So we'll start in verse 21. The end of eight days... When he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Parents, maybe you can relate to this. Uh, I, I know my wife and I have, uh, this has been agonizing for us, but we've been, got back and forth and back and forth. What are we going to name our child? It's kind of a big deal. I mean, their, their entire future is literally in your hands. Like, that is what they're going to be called for the rest of their lives. And, you know, you're just stressing out. Like, oh, if I give them the wrong name now, they're never going to get a job in the future. It's going to be terrible. But wouldn't it be nice if an angel would just appear and tell us what to name our children? You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Well, it's easy. He was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Verse 21 also tells us that in addition to being named Jesus, he was also, on the eighth day, circumcised. That's been clear from day one. From that very first night when the shepherds came to see him, that this is no ordinary baby. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This is no ordinary baby. And yet, the very first thing that we're told about his life as a human being is that he underwent a procedure on the eighth day that was expected of every Jewish boy since the days of Abraham. Right? Circumcision. But the fact that Jesus underwent circumcision is in itself interesting. Because the, the ritual, as the covenant sign of God's people back then, was in part a symbol of our sinfulness. Like it signified our need to have a new heart. That's what Moses says in Deuteronomy 30. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. And then Paul uh, further develops that point, right? In in the book of Romans chapter 2, he plainly says, circumcision is a matter of the heart. So here's our question. Why then would Jesus, he who had no sin, he who was holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, he who didn't need a new heart, Why would Jesus undergo circumcision? Well, the answer is, Galatians 4.4, he was born under the law. 
Because he came to fulfill the law for us. He came to keep the law perfectly for us. And so he was sent, Romans 8, 3, in the likeness of sinful flesh, uh, to fulfill the law perfectly for sinners like you and like me. And so he had to be circumcised in accordance with the law. But now look at how the the scene shifts uh, in verse 22 to Jerusalem. Bethlehem, Jerusalem, relatively close to each other geographically. Mary and Joseph bring the baby Jesus with them to the temple, again, in accordance with the law. Look at verses 22 to 24. When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, admittedly, uh, this section here is a little bit confusing. Uh, There's uh, two different ceremonial things that are going on simultaneously in this passage. So first, uh, if you look at verse 22, the time came for their purification. Uh, That's referring to a law from Leviticus chapter 12. Uh, I'll let you read that chapter on your own later. But basically, the idea is that under the law... A woman who gives birth to a son is basically unclean until the 40th day after birth when she was to bring a year-old lamb for a burnt offering and then a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering and make atonement for her uncleanness. But lambs weren't cheap. So look at Leviticus 12.8. If she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her and she shall be clean. It was known as the offering for the poor. If you can't afford a lamb, two birds is fine. Now look at verse 24, back in Luke chapter 2. What is it that Mary and Joseph offer? It's a sacrifice of a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons, right? Two birds, which implies that they probably couldn't afford a lamb. Right, so Luke is kind of subtly driving home the point, once again, that the Son of God was not born into royalty or nobility, a family of wealth or a family of power. And so that's one thing that's going on here ceremonially. You've got the purification of Mary. The other, if you look at the end of verse 22, is the presentation of the Son. They brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. That idea comes from Exodus 13. Uh, Basically, it's this idea that since God spared the firstborn sons of Israel during the Exodus, right, the plagues in Egypt, well, all the firstborn sons in Israel then were to be consecrated to God, right, set apart to the Lord. And then related to that is the idea that since God called the Levites to be his priests, uh, non-Levites, like Jesus, right, he's from the tribe of Judah, Uh, They were exempt from priestly service, and so the family would typically pay like this redemption price for their son, uh, firstborn son, of five shekels. Uh, Though Luke doesn't seem to make direct reference to that here. All that to say, right, even if you weren't following every single little detail, uh, the main takeaway here is that Jesus fulfilled the law. God, in his divine providence, gives Jesus human parents, right, Joseph and Mary, who are obedient to fulfill the law so that he himself might fully keep the law on behalf of his people. Now, how do we know 
that that's the point of the passage. How do we know? Well, our biggest clue is repetition. Our biggest clue is repetition. Our biggest clue is repetition. Look at verse 22. When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses. Verse 23. As it is written in the law of the Lord. Verse 24. To sacrifice, to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. You see the repetition. But there's more. Verse 27. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. And just in case you've been daydreaming, just in case you haven't been paying any attention at all, look at verse 39. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord. That's five references in our passage to how Joseph and Mary did everything with respect to Jesus and his birth according to the law. Like Luke could not be clearer. Friends, this is going to be a big theme throughout this gospel as we study the life of the Lord Jesus. Oftentimes we focus on his death on a cross and his resurrection, and we should because that's the essence of the gospel. But let's never forget the perfect, sinless, law-fulfilling life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke goes out of his way to point it out. Right, that, that from birth, uh, from day number eight, uh, from day number 40, Jesus perfectly keeps the law. Not just in the sense that he doesn't sin, although he does not sin, but also in fulfilling all of the ceremonial aspects of the law on our behalf. From his birth, from his infancy, born under the law, subjecting himself to the law, he keeps the law fully. You might be familiar with James 2.10. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Well, Jesus kept the whole law and never failed at any point. And it's that righteousness that's been given to all of his people. So friends, if you are a Christian, if you are one who by faith is united to Christ... You can read all of this law-fulfilling obedience in this chapter, and some of it sounds very obscure to us, but you can rejoice, you can praise God, because that righteousness has been imputed to you. Luke gives us this mini-narrative, this, this ceremonial obedience here, because this is part of what it means for him to be a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Not just that he's going to die for the sins of his people, although he will. It's also for him to fulfill perfectly God's law on behalf of God's people. And so we get a little preview of that. We get a little early sampling of that here in this story. Now all of this is going on in the temple. You got, you got Mary, you got Joseph. They're doing their thing. Luke's now going to introduce us to two new characters, Simeon and Anna. Now, interesting thing about Simeon and Anna here, uh, this is the only place that either of them appear anywhere on the pages of the New Testament. And so we should be thinking, well, why does Luke specifically include their accounts in his gospel? 
I think the answer is he's using their accounts as evidence. Let everything be established by the mouth of two or three witnesses. Right? These are testimonies from faithful saints that this indeed is the one for whom God's people have been expectantly waiting. Because look at how Luke first establishes for both Simeon and Anna uh, like a credibility as witnesses. Verse 25, Simeon was righteous and devout. The Holy Spirit was upon him. And so he is a credible witness. Listen to what he says. Anna, verse 37, did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. She is a credible witness. Listen to what she has to say. But these aren't some random people testifying to Jesus. These are two of the most devout worshipers. Two saints who really love the Lord. Hear their testimonies. But also look at how Luke points out another common thread between them. And that's that they were eagerly waiting for the Messiah. They were singing, come thou long expected Jesus. Simeon, look at how he's described in verse 25 as waiting for the consolation of Israel. And then Anna and her crew, verse 38, all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. We've talked about this in past weeks. Uh, This was, just kind of generally speaking, a really dark time. Kingdom of Israel, gone. Wicked King Herod in charge. The pagan uh, Caesar Augustus, he rules over everything. This is a dark time for the people of God. And even amongst the Jews, uh, legalism abounded. Sin and, and unrighteousness and ungodliness and unfaithfulness was everywhere. And worst of all, it just kind of seemed like God was absent and silent. Like Zechariah said, they were sitting in darkness. Uh, They were in the shadow of death. This was a crooked and twisted generation, if there ever was one. But we're reminded, Romans 11.5, God always keeps a remnant chosen by grace. I think sometimes we, like as readers of the New Testament, we can be so focused on the overall rejection of Jesus by the Jewish people. Right? He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. That we can forget that God had his faithful remnant. Like even amidst all of the godlessness and hypocrisy and empty religion, God still has his Simeon and his Anna who are going to expectantly wait for his salvation. So let's start by looking at Simeon's encounter and Simeon's testimony here. That phrase in verse 25, you see, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Uh, You think about how we use the word consolation uh, to console someone. You you bring them comfort. Well, the Messiah was promised to bring comfort to the people of God. And that's a picture from the book of Isaiah. Comfort. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Isaiah 41. Simeon was expectantly waiting for that comfort of Israel. So look at verse 26. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law... 
he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Sometimes, like we saw with the registration of Caesar Augustus, sometimes God's providence is kind of like behind the scenes. It's a little bit hidden. Here, Simeon running into Jesus, right? Like it's, it's blatant. It's, it's plain. This is no coincidence. The text specifically tells us that the Spirit led Simeon to Jesus. But why? Why was this meeting necessary? Well, in Simeon's case, it's not just that God had promised that he would send the Messiah. Like, like all of God's people knew that. It's all over the Old Testament. Now for Simeon, Simeon specifically, it's that he knew, because the Holy Spirit had revealed it to him, that he would not die until he saw the Messiah with his own eyes. And so Simeon takes the baby, Jesus, in his arms. He holds God's salvation in his arms. And he's ready to go. Lord, you are now letting your servant depart in peace. Kind of reminds us of Psalm 130. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. Well, now that the morning is here, and now that the day spring from on high is here, the watchman's ready to go home. He's been discharged of his duties. He, he, he had been expectantly waiting for this moment for many years. Now he's seen it. Now he's ready to go home. He, he's, he's ready to die. But let's not miss something really significant that Simeon says here. Because if you think about it, as careful readers of Luke, right, like as those who've been really carefully reading through this book so far, uh, He hasn't really said anything that new. Like, we knew that Jesus was God's salvation. That's not new. The new revelation, we've seen hints of it, but here, this is the first time that it's really clearly referenced. The new revelation is the scope of God's salvation. Like, we knew that Jesus was God's salvation, but we did not yet know the scope of this salvation. My eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. And Simeon, what do you mean by all peoples? A light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory for, and for glory to your people Israel. Now, when I say new, I simply mean that it's a new idea in this book, right? Like starting in Luke chapter 1, verse 1. It's certainly not a new idea biblically speaking. Like God's made it very clear that his salvation is ultimately going to be for all peoples, not just Israel. Look at Isaiah 49. God says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Jesus, God's salvation, is not just for Israel. He's not just for the Jewish people. He's also salvation for the Gentiles, for non-Jews, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Let me give you one more reference, also from Isaiah. 
Isaiah 52, the Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. God's salvation was never intended to be limited to one people. This is a salvation for the ends of the earth. And so Simeon, in his hopeful expectation, he rightly sees Jesus not only as the Savior of the Jews, but also the Savior of the world. All the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. But as glorious as that is, this universal reach of God's salvation, well, Simeon's not done. Because yes, God would save people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation but God would not save all people. And as a result, there was much difficulty ahead for this child. Verse 33, his mother and his father marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. The same Jesus who would be the cause of great joy in God's salvation among all nations would also be a stumbling stone of judgment, a sign that is opposed for others who would reject him. The same Jesus who would be appointed for the rising, the resurrection of many in Israel is also at the same time appointed for the eternal fall of others. The same Jesus who would one day sit on David's throne and rule and reign forever would first have to be put to death. A sword is going to pierce through your own soul also, Mary. Jesus would divide. Because Jesus would expose hearts so that many hearts may be revealed. Just like you bring a bright flashlight into a, a dark room and it reveals what's in the darkest corners of the room. So Jesus, the light of the world, he exposed the darkest corners of men's hearts. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. And so while some would worship Jesus with all their hearts, others would hate Jesus as the one who exposed the wickedness of their hearts. Jesus would divide. He's very clear about that. He himself later said, Do you think, Luke 12, 51, that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there shall be five divided, three against two and two against three. Friends, there has never in human history been a person as divisive as Jesus Christ. That's even true this morning, right? Even this morning, as I proclaim to you the gospel, the good news that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, 
So hearts in this room are divided. To some of you, that is the sweetest and most wonderful news in the world. It's the aroma of life. And yet to some of you, the same words, the same gospel, the same Jesus, well, you could care less. You can care less about the things of God, the glory of God. It means nothing to you. To you, it's the aroma of death. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. The other, a fragrance from life to life. Friends, when it comes to Jesus, like you cannot remain neutral. You can be neutral about Caesar Augustus. You can be neutral about Alexander the Great. You can be neutral about Charlemagne. You cannot be neutral about Jesus. Because he's God. And so you either worship him rightly as God, or by your refusal to worship him, you rebel against him. I will not have this man to rule over me. And so you're either his child, or you're his enemy. To use Simeon's language, You are either rising or you are falling. Friend, if you are not a Christian, please do not walk out of this room thinking that all is well with you, that uh, you're just kind of in between. Uh, You're you're neither Jesus' friend uh, nor his enemy. That's impossible because he came to divide. You need to know that as it stands, you are his enemy. You're you're one heartbeat away from an eternity in hell. You must cry out for him to save you. This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And this Jesus is appointed for the fall and rising of many even today. So Joseph and Mary, they're processing these words, right? A sword will pierce through your own soul also, Mary. And then along comes another one of God's faithful, expectant children. We're introduced to the prophetess Anna. Verse 36, there was a prophetess Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. And then as a widow until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Now, Anna was advanced in years. Uh, Some of your versions might say uh, she was of a great age. Uh, I like that. I will never offend someone again by calling them old. I'm just going to say, you, sir, are of a great age. Now, the text is unclear, though, how great her age was. If you have an ESV, you'll see that it says that she was 84. But then you look at the footnote, it says that the Greek uh, says that it could also be uh, she was a widow for 84 years. Widow for 84 years. Kind of do the math here. Uh, Girls married young back then. And so let's say she was 14 or 15, uh, plus seven years of marriage, plus widowhood for 84 Puts her at about 105, 106. 
You say, wait, wait a minute. She was 105 years old and given to prayer and worship and speaking of God to all who would hear. That's way too old for someone to be doing all of that. Well, I wish you met Arlene Brower, right? a dear 105-year-old saint in this church who just recently went to be with the Lord. But however old she was, here's what we do know. This woman loved the Lord. She did not depart from the temple. Some have suggested that she was like living on the temple grounds, like in an apartment or something. I don't think that's what Luke is saying here. I think he's just pointing out her faithfulness. Like she was always there, worshiping, fasting, praying, night and day. And she was always worshiping the Lord. As someone who was widowed at a very young age, maybe you'd think she might be bitter at God. But no, not at all. She used all the years that God gave her in her singleness, in her widowhood, to worship him. And she gets in on this fun as well. Luke doesn't tell us what she said. Just that she sees all of this happening with Simeon and Jesus and Joseph and Mary. And she too gives thanks to God. Because she too has now seen the Messiah. And she speaks of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Like I said last week with the shepherds, right? We speak about that which which we are most uh, passionate And so this dear sister, she's been living as a widow for decades, uh, waiting decade after decade, year after year for God's salvation to come. Well, now he's finally here. And she can't help herself. She patiently waited for this moment all of her life. And so out of the overflow of her heart, now her mouth speaks. This is the one that we've been waiting for. Quick application here. Let me... Just speak to those of you who are of a great age. You know who you are. My dear brothers and sisters, you may not have the mobility that you once had. You may not have the energy and the strength that you once had. You may not be able to do all of the things that you were once able to do in serving the Lord. Precious saints, precious brothers and sisters, I remind you that there is still much kingdom work for you to do. Look at Hannah. Her presence with the people of God never left the temple. Her fasting and prayer, her devotion, her thanksgiving, her speaking of him to all who would listen. You see how Luke commends those things. She was a faithful woman. More importantly, God is glorified by all of those things. And those are things that every saint can faithfully do until the Lord takes them home. The specific duties, responsibilities, ministries that you can undertake in your great age, uh, that will evolve. But friends, I remind you that there is no retirement age from faithfully loving and serving the Lord. And so let's all of us, every single believer in this room, but especially those of you saints of a great age, let's sprint hard to the finish line. Let's give it all we've got until the Lord calls us home. Let me finish with verse 39 and then we'll pick it up in 40 next time. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. So we'll just take a step back here. Let's just think big picture. 
Right? Jesus, born in Bethlehem. All of this temple stuff that we've talked about today, that happens in Jerusalem. And then verse 39, the family ends up going back to Nazareth. Now, if you're familiar with the Gospel of Matthew, uh, you have to be wondering at this point, well, what about the wise men? Uh, what about the whole going to Egypt thing? Like, how, how, how does that fit in here? The fact that Joseph and Mary gave the offering of the poor, that probably implies that the wise men had not yet visited them. Because remember, they came bearing gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Like, oh, surely if they had received those gifts before coming to Jerusalem, uh, they would have been able to afford a lamb. Uh, The more more logical chronology seems to be that Jesus is born in Bethlehem. The family goes up to Jerusalem to to make these offerings. They run into Simeon and Anna there. Then they go back to Bethlehem, relatively close by, stay there a little bit longer. And it's then that the wise men come, visit them. And then there's a subsequent flight to Egypt. And then they're coming back to Israel from Egypt. Joseph is warned in a dream to not go back to Bethlehem. But he instead takes his family to Nazareth. And Luke really captures all of that in just one verse. Look at verse 39. They returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And so he just entirely leaves out this Egyptian detour. Why? Well, that's that's a really good question. Uh, I think we're entering into the realm of speculation here. uh, But we can reasonably rule out that Luke didn't know about the whole trip to Egypt. I mean, clearly this is a man who's done his homework. Uh, Mary might have even been a source for some of this uh, stuff in the early chapters. And so clearly whatever the reason was for the omission, it was intentional. A possible answer that I came across uh, that perhaps is helpful is that Luke intentionally keeps his gospel, the gospel of Luke, like focused on Jesus and Israel. It's only in the second part of his account in the gospel, uh, the gospel of Acts, the book of Acts, uh, that Luke focuses on the gospel going out, right, outside of the borders of Israel to the rest of the world. Interesting argument, right, because as we keep reading in this gospel, we're going to see that Luke rarely chronicles Jesus exiting the promised land or even interacting with Gentiles, right? Like he leaves out stories and references that the other synoptics, right, Matthew and Mark include. And so the argument goes, well, since the wise men are not Israelites, uh, since the flight, of, flight to Egypt takes Jesus outside of the promised land, uh, Luke chooses to omit it because it's kind of outside the focus and scope of his gospel. Interesting theory. We can't be certain. But what we do know for sure is that verse 39 functions in Luke's gospel to bring Jesus to Nazareth. And that then sets up the yearly visit to Jerusalem that we'll cover next time. As we close here, I just want us to think again about this entire section, right? These three mini-narratives. And I want us to think about it through the lens of one verse in particular, and that's verse 29. Lord, this is Simeon speaking, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word. Friends, the fact is that if the Lord should tarry each and every one of us, uh, there's going to come a day when we will depart from this life. I don't know when that's going to be. I don't know what the circumstances are going to be. I don't know who's next. Uh, But two things that I know for sure, uh, when someone in this room is next, 
And two, whether you depart in peace or not depends entirely on what you do with Jesus. The Bible says that there is no peace for the wicked. That's because for the wicked, for those who haven't had their sins forgiven, those who are still in their sin, all that awaits you when you depart from this life is judgment. It is appointed unto man to die once, and after that comes judgment. After that comes an eternity in hell where you're going to pay for the sins that you've committed against the holy God. And you can try not to think about it. You can live like you're immortal. You can distract yourself with amusement. You can say peace, peace when there is no peace. But at the end of the day, the reality is, right, the Bible says that you are a slave to the fear of death. First time parenting is nothing. Right? Nothing terrorizes us like death, the prospect of death, that we will depart. And so I tell you one last time this morning to look to the one for whom Simeon was expectantly waiting. Look to the one for whom Anna was expectantly waiting. Look to the one in whom all of God's people have placed their full trust. Jesus, tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Jesus who took the sins of his people and died on a Roman cross in their place. Jesus who gave his people his perfect righteous record, including all of those ceremonial obligations that we talked about earlier today, so that we might be perfect in God's sight. You who have no peace, even right now as you're sitting in your pew, you have no peace, you can be at peace with God today by believing this gospel. And so you can say with Simeon in your dying moments, you are letting your servant depart in peace because you know this peace, the Prince of Peace, right? Jesus Christ, who reconciles sinners to God. we we'll close by reading John 1. One more passage about how Christ divides, how he will be spoken against, how he will cause some to fall but it's also a passage about how Christ saves, how he was appointed for the rising of many. Jesus came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. He is appointed for the fall of many. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The rising of many. Receive Christ today. Return to him and so be saved. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your son, Jesus Christ, who is born that he might save his people from their sins. We thank you for these early accounts, these early testimonies of who he would be and what he would do. And Father, we pray that if there are any in this room who have no peace with you because 
of unforgiven sin because they have no salvation, that they would look to the salvation that Simeon saw and held in his arms, that they would look to the salvation that Anna rejoiced in, that they would look to the salvation of all of God's people, Jew and Gentile, all of God's people who have placed their trust in him. Father, we pray that you would be delighted and glorified to save sinners. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.